0: The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. O everlasting God, who has ordained and constituted the services of angels and men in a wonderful order, mercifully grant that as thy holy angels always do thee service in heaven, so by thy appointment they may succor and defend us on earth, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are continuing our class on angels, and the reason why we're doing this, as I said last week, Mm -hmm. is that next week, uh, on Wednesday, instead of doing a class, we're going to all come together on the 29th for the Mass of St. Michael and All Angels. So part of this class is explaining what are and who are the angels so that we have a better depth of knowledge of the Mass that we'll be doing together next week. The week after that, I'll teach one more class, and the final class will be more about our day-to-day interactions with angels and demons. So that will be more about uh, our, the spiritual warfare of the angelic presences, of um, experiencing angelic and demonic presences, what do we do with that sort of thing. That will be in two weeks. This week, what we're going to do is keep on kind of talking about an overview and looking at how do we know what we are talking about with angels. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, yeah. uh, when we were driving home from Agape, Julie turned to me and said, well, that was good, but I just wanted to raise my hand and say, she was more positive, was more positive than that she was very positive. She said, really, well done, my amazing husband. That was awesome. But I wanted to raise my hand the whole time and say, well, how do you know that? How do you actually know that an angel is an intellectual substance? Or how do you know that angels can apprehend the essence of a thing immediately, while we as humans have to kind of labor through this process of experiential knowledge through our senses? So what I'm going to try to do, oh yeah, and then at dinner tonight, Katie raised her hand and she said, well, how do you know that? (laughs) So I was like, all right, this is a great, great thing that I had this prepared then. Um, What I'm going to talk about then tonight is that, is to kind of look at the three sources that we have for angeology. And the first one is going to be Holy Scripture. Uh, The second one is going to be uh, Philosophy and Theology. And the third one is going to be experience itself. And when we go through these different bases of knowledge, uh, we will be then kind of taking time and seeing what do they say about angels uh, there and then. Uh, We'll see how this goes. Uh, I'm not... I'm not quite sure. So let's turn to our first uh, source of angelology, which is the revealed truth that's just given to us in Holy Scripture. And within Scripture, there's over, right, I think, over 300 different references to angels. Uh, and even though there are large swaths of Scripture where they're not mentioned, angels actually kind of show up you know, so, at at such a common um, rate, it actually becomes amazing when you start looking at the references of where they are. And there's a consistent presence of angels throughout the whole scriptural narrative. Uh, When we look at the canon, uh, the canon of scripture, uh, what we start seeing is a development of the idea of angels even throughout scripture. And the development of angeology is built around a tension. And I want to talk about this because this tension is still here today with us. Uh, The tension is this. People want to assert the presence of a spiritual being. But they also need to defend that that spiritual being is not God the spiritual being right so there's this tension between saying yeah there are angels and they're spiritual beings well if they're spiritual beings aren't they god isn't god a spiritual being so there's this need to differentiate between angels who are a spiritual be- who are spiritual uh, beings and then god himself and what we see in within the biblical witness is actually kind of a a slow stuttering start to the acceptance of who angels are because of this tension. Uh, So when you look at the Old Testament, uh, the texts that were written before the Babylonian captivity, right? So here we're in the Pentateuch, and um, this is during the time when Israel is living within and among many other polytheistic religions, And we see a limitation to angelic movement within these passages because Israel itself feels a challenge to their monotheistic religion at this point because of who they're living around. And there's not as many angelic citations within this period of time. When we do see them present, we see them identified within a radical subordination, a radical um, uh, position underneath God that's clearly delineated. Uh, so we see references, for example, um, in, during this time period to angels as the army of God, like his foot soldiers, or that they are around his throne as a king sits in a throne room, Right? So really delineating the difference here that, no, God's the king and the angels are just kind of the ones around his throne room giving him honor. But then when you move to the texts that were written in the post-Babylonian captivity, you start seeing this kind of awakening of angelic references. And then they start filling out everything. There's a couple reasons for this. One is that, in cultural reason, that Hebrews are now in contact with the Persians. They're in contact with uh, the Greeks. In both of those cultures, had a very, very robust angeology already in this idea of spirits. But also, at this point, Israel now has a deeper sense of God's transcendence. And so, therefore, it, it kind of, by, by understanding the transcendence of God, now, this idea of another spiritual being doesn't—it doesn't, uh, it doesn't um, kind of risk deifying the angels. There's there's a greater separation now. They don't have to worry about these uh, two spiritual beings kind of blending together. And then the transcendence of God, which now is much more thoroughly um, talked about leads to a development in this idea of mediation. That if God is so transcendent, there needs to be a mediation now between man and God. And so that gives rise to the idea of angels more. And so this is where we start seeing um, new references of angels, both descending from God to help man, and then also angels ascending from man and taking their prayers up to God. Uh, This we see clearly in the apocryphal book of Tobit, where uh, Tobias, who's Tobit's son, am I saying that name right, Tobias? Yes. Uh, Tobias is going on a journey, and God sends Raphael down to Tobias to aid him on that journey. Part of that journey, it's really interesting, is to cast out a demon from this woman named Sarah, this demon was killing all of her suitors on, his, on their wedding night. And so she couldn't get married. And so she prays to God, please help me get rid of this demon who's killing all my suitors. And so Tobias goes, uh, and with Raphael's help, the demon is exorcised, cast out. He marries uh, Sarah, and then they go back to his father and mother, uh, and who, Tobit, and he heals Tobit from his blindness. So then you see, and then when, uh, when they go back, uh, Tobit is, speaks with Raphael and Raphael says, I heard your prayers and I brought your prayers back to God. So this idea now of this mediation of uh, kind of taking that idea of Jacob's ladder um, and then expanding on that, now that uh, not just in one particular point, but now angels are assisting all mankind with their prayers this ascension and ascension of uh, angels. And also, now there's a plethora of angels. And this is what we see in Daniel. Uh, In Daniel's account, right, I mean, this is in the Babylonian captivity. He says uh, in chapter seven, in trying to describe what he's seen in this image, he says, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands of angels ministered unto him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. So now, not only the acceptance that the angels are working in both ways, but now that there's an infinity of angels, right? And those are the numbers. It's not literally for us to calculate that out. Is to say there's an uncountable amount of angels. This idea of, of the angelic presences, of now kind of developing into this full form Uh, is what you see then in the the later books of the Old Testament and the Apocrypha, was developed because of the ability to to see God's transcendence. And because of that, then there's no need and risk of, um, of worshiping angels, right? So that tension, though, still goes on, even within the New Testament, where you have uh, several, uh, citations of, uh, people trying to worship angels. One, uh, John himself in Revelation, he, uh, he sees an angel, bows down, and he just says, get off your feet. What is this? I'm a creature just like you. Don't worship me, right? Know that there is God, and, and I'm just an angel. You need to know that. So that tension, we'll talk about this, it comes up again and again. So what else do we see in scripture, though, about the angels? Uh, one interesting thing is that they're not actually mentioned in Genesis in the creation account. So if they're not actually mentioned in creation, were they created? Were, how do we know that, right? If scripture actually doesn't say it, well, there are actually a couple of other references to angels uh, and they're. Creation. One is in Job, actually. Uh, In Job 38, he says, Where were you when I laid, this is God speaking, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is the impersonation of, of angels as the stars. And so there's this idea that the angels were present at the creation of the world and they shouted for joy. They worshiped God because of the creation. This is one thing that Kevin Hart was talking to me about and pointing out that Augustine, in his commentary to Genesis, actually says that the creation of the world was not for us. It was for the angels. It was for the angels to know the power and the glory of God. Do I have that right? That's what Augustine says, that creation was for the angels. That's the purpose, to show them his power and his glory. And so we do know from Scripture in Job that they are present there. Uh, So let's go on and look at a couple other references to angels throughout the Old Testament and what we can learn. Uh, After that fact, uh, they don't show up too much until uh, Abraham, where there's uh, several appearances of angels. One, uh, that the angels are mentioned to help out Hagar. When she gets banished, the angels come and minister her in the, in the wilderness uh, in a couple different times, actually. Then there's the three angels who visit Abraham, and the angels uh, who met Abraham included one who's always titled the Angel of the Lord, which is a really strange reference. Uh, a lot of people want to take that to mean uh, the second person of the Trinity, meaning the word, meaning Jesus. Uh, other people want to take this to mean, no, it's just a maybe a specific angel who has a specific uh, ministry in this way. Uh, Augustine, interestingly, on this says, well, yes, both of them. He says, we don't have to disclude either of those options. It's probably both. Uh, in the New Testament, we also have references to the angel of the Lord, uh, and those references are done even when Christ has been born in the flesh, when he's been incarnate. So, there is some idea that an angel, there is this title of angel of the Lord in reference to someone not, who who is not Jesus. And in fact, the angel of the Lord is one of the titles given to Gabriel uh, when he visits Bethlehem. So uh, we do have to kind of keep all these options uh, kind of floating around in there. Uh, But we have this idea of the angels at least visiting Abraham and Hagar. Then the angels are uh, rescuing Lot, uh, when he lingers, then the men seized him and, and his wife, and so the Lord, being merciful to Lot, uh, they sent angels who brought him out and left him outside the city. Jacob is visited by angels uh, three times. One, we have the idea of, of, or the story of him in which he sees the stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to the heavens, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Uh, and then later on in Genesis 31, an angel of God uh, comes to Jacob in a dream. And then another time uh, in Genesis 48, uh, the angel, uh, Jacob is is telling a story and he says, the angels delivered me from all harm. May he bless these boys. Uh, And this is his kind of passing on the blessing. So Jacob's remembering this idea or remembering the visitation of the angels and then asking for that angel to continue to bless his descendants this idea of this continual ministry of angels passing from generation to generation. Uh, That matches really well, I'm just thinking about this maybe, to the idea of Michael being called the angel of Israel, that Israel itself, as a people, had a a guardian, had an angel appointed for them. Uh, Then, of course, in the story of the Exodus, we have a Passover angel, the angel of death, After the Exodus in Sinai, we have the giving of the law, where we have several different citations saying that the angels were the ministers of the law. Uh, This comes from uh, Deuteronomy, where it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with myriads of holy ones from the south this idea of the Lord coming with his holy ones, coming with his angels uh, to this place of Sinai. And in Psalms, it says in 68, Psalm 68, with mighty chariotry, twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands, the, la- the Lord came from Sinai into the holy place. And then in uh, Paul, uh, Luke mentions this in Acts, and Paul in Galatians and the author of the Hebrews all mention that the angels were the ones who ministered the law to the people at Sinai. It's this really interesting idea of mediation, of the the angels presenting the law to the people and being in charge of the law uh, through the hands of the mediator, which were the angels. Uh, Then we get the really great story in Numbers of um, the speaking donkey uh, who is speaking to his master, Balaam, and he says, Am I not your donkey, which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I been in the habit of treating you this way? And do you guys remember this story? He stops and he won't go. And he said, No, no. <laughs> then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his drawn sword in his hand, and Balaam fell down, falling on his face. <laughs> uh, we have several references of God using angels... As, as ministers of judgment or rebuke, both towards Israel and also to the enemies of Israel. Uh, so, for example, in Judges 2, uh, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Baccham and said, I brought you up from Egypt, and he, he recounts the covenant, and he says, you, didn't, you broke the covenant And so, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the Israelites, the people lifted up their voices and cried, Have mercy on us, right? So, this is the angel now being sent to be a judge to Israel. Um, But then, also uh, in Judges 5, it says, Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse bitterly its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Meaning that now, the enemies of Israel are being judged by the angels. And again, this happens uh, in 2 Samuel as well, when the Lord brings judgment upon Jerusalem and it was an angel the Lord he sent for destruction. And that's because of the sins of David. Now, into the prophets, we have Elijah, who is strengthened by an angel in the wilderness. He looked at... An angel touched him and said, get up. And there was a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and was refreshed. Very interesting passage there of now showing how angels can minister in a way that is not even spiritual here, too. This is a ministration of physical means now, which is really interesting. And that's a great allegory then for Christ being ministered by the angels in the wilderness as well. Uh, we have the angels killing the Assyrians, which Carolyn pointed out last week. She said, "What do we do with that?" Ooh, this is this is a, a, a uh, one hundred and eighty-five thousand Assyrians were killed uh, when the angel of the Lord set out and struck them all down. And when morning dawned, they were all dead bodies. That's from Second Kings. So this again, the idea of, of God using the mediation of an angel to bring judgment, and in this case, just like in Exodus, a judgment of death. Uh, then, in uh, Babylonian captivity, uh, the angels are saving the three uh, the three boys in the fire, and saving Daniel by shutting the lion's mouth. Uh, so all of these uh, interactions with angels coming down both physically, ministering physically to these people, but also uh, at times in judgment and uh, spiritually. In the Apocrypha, I already mentioned Tobit. Now, turning to the New Testament, uh, we're just going to be focusing on, on angelic presences. The New Testament then kind of flourishes compared to the Old Testament with demonic references, but also many, many references to angels as well. So then this kind of development, like we said, of being able to, how to distinguish angels from God, and if we can do that, then we can talk more and more about angels. If not, we got to be really, we got to be really uh, wary of what we're doing. Uh, So you have angels visiting Zacharias in the temple, uh, visiting Mary in the Annunciation, visiting Joseph on three accounts, uh, both to tell him to marry, but remember also the angels telling him when to leave, and then when to come back, uh, and angels uh, appearing to the shepherds, Jesus being administered uh, by the angels. We have John mentioning that the angel stirs the water in the pool of Bethsaida for healing, uh, and mentions that as what actually happens, and people do get healed by getting to the first person who gets in that water that's been stirred by an angel gets healed. Uh, Then the angel strengthens Jesus again in Luke 22. The angels appear at the tomb, both to Mary and Mary Magdalene and the disciples. Then in the Mount of Olives, uh, to the disciples after the ascension. Remember they're all looking up and the angel says, hello, hello, come on. Yeah, he's gone. He told you he would do this. Let's get to work now. Go back to Jerusalem. Uh, The disciples are freed from prison in Acts 5. Uh, Philip is visited by an angel, and then told to travel to Gaza, and that's the trip in which he gets transferred to the, or, uh, to meet the Ethiopian, and then back again. Uh, Cornelius is then visited by an angel, so now we have angels visiting the Gentiles, uh, and then he's told to go seek out Peter. Peter's freed from prison by an angel in Acts 12. Paul's visited uh, on his boat ride when, when there's the shipwreck, and he's told by an angel, you're not going to die, don't worry. And then uh, John the Apostle, of course, is visited by angels in visions, and Revelation is filled uh, with references to angels. Uh, and those references are really important for us because those references, and this is what we'll get to next week, are pointing to the present ministration of angels today, but also to the future of angels in the last days, in the time of our resurrection when we will actually understand all of this a little bit more. So, for example, there's the seven angels of the seven churches in Revelation 1, and that's a present reference to angelic ministry to the churches uh, in, in that area. Uh, but then there's also the uh, the kind of mystical talking of angels in in a sense of the last times, of the four angels at the four corners of the earth, the angels all around the altar, some with trumpets, one with a censer, the incense, and they're gathering the prayers of the people, bringing them up to the altar, and then bringing the results of those prayers back to earth and making sure God's will is done. This is all within Scripture, right? All of those references, all of those things about the angels are that's all what we receive. Uh, So a good summary of all of that, uh, I like this little quote by a guy named Father Shaw, uh, who wrote, the angels of light are therefore to us the mirrors of divine glory. They are mirrors of divine glory, right? That's one of the things that we see uh, in, in the biblical references, that they are bringing to us and teaching us about God. Uh, but two, they're also messengers of the divine will, and guardians to aid our correspondence with the divine purpose, and, as we must not forget, our co-operators in worship. So that's kind of a general summary of the actions of angels, of being mirrors of divine glory, messengers of the divine will, both for good and for, you know, judgment. Uh, They're guardians to aid our correspondence with God, and they are our co-operators in worship. Uh, They worship with us. They assist our worship as we join with them. So that's all within Holy Scripture. Uh, There are some who say, well, stop there, Father Sean. You shouldn't go any farther, right? Uh, one uh, One of the theologians, one of the more famous theologians of our times, Karl Barth, uh, is quoted to say in his Church Dharmatics that in the Church Fathers, there is a whole series of similar conceptions which plainly deviate from the Bible and obviously derive their nourishment from another source. I think he's talking about the devil there, probably. Decisive for all that follows is the emergence and rapid domination of the assumption that it is possible, legitimate, and necessary to seek the existence and nature of angels elsewhere than in their function as God's heavenly messengers. It was under the sway of an alien interest that there was an increasing desire to know about the nature of angels and increasing belief that it was possible to know what these beings are in themselves. So Karl Barth, uh, who is probably the most famous Protestant theologian of, of the 20th century and 20th, now too, uh, really had a hard time Of going anywhere beyond Scripture to to investigate angelic nature or their mission or what they're like. And so he says, don't go any farther. Don't touch anything else. Just stick to the divine revelation in Scripture. We don't follow Karl Barth on this uh, for a couple good reasons. Uh, His own critique can lead to one of two really dangerous conclusions, I think, uh, without using other sources, such as theology and philosophy. We risk, uh, one, uh, coming to a purely literal or fundamental view of Holy Scripture. So, for example, if we were to only consider what is revealed to us, uh, we might then end up with this literal view that all angels have actual bodies and that's part of their essence because of how many times angels actually do show up with bodies in Holy Scripture. And so if we were to follow Bart's critique, and even he wouldn't accept that, but there's no kind of way to stop that without resorting to philosophy and theology to help aid our thinking. The other uh, conclusion that we can uh, come to is that if we were to follow Barth's uh, idea of only sticking to revealed knowledge in what is revealed to us in Holy Scripture, uh, we have no protection against the more modern impulse to say that all of these visitations of angels were just psychological. They weren't actually there. That That was the person's own image of what he was thinking, it was his own psychological uh, importation of something. It wasn't an actual essence of the angel. Now Bart doesn't go that far, but there's really no way to to kind of stop that critique without using and resorting back to philosophy and theology to kind of understand a more re- robust vision of angels. So, the second source that we have for angelology is philosophy and theology. Uh, Once we have some things revealed, like we do in Holy Scripture, that angels do exist, uh, we do know that they're spirits and they're ministering spirits, then we can use philosophy uh, to help us understand them more. We can tease out uh, these stories and experiences that we see in Scripture to understand more and more about who and what angels are. One, one good example of this, or, or one good kind of place to, to show this is St. Thomas Aquinas, in his Summa, talks about angels in two different places. In neither of those places does he try to prove the existence of angels from philosophy, or just try to say, we're going to start and we're going to ignore Holy Scripture and just try to prove the existence of angels uh, as they are. No, no. In fact, he starts with the revealed truth given in Scripture and then Aquinas is prompted by this this desire uh, for an understanding of the faith that he's reading about, a desire to understand what is given to him in Holy Scripture and then to pursue those ideas more. So while our God-given intellect can know the essence of material substances, that's what we're designed to do, we can still start uh, from the fact that an angel is a pure intellectual substance. Then we can use metaphysical reasoning, philosophy, and theology that it's enlightened by faith and to arrive at this indirect knowledge of the generic properties of angels. So, for example... This is what we did last week. Uh, We acknowledge and we started that angels are spirits. We get that from Hebrews 1 very clearly, uh, that angels are spirits. From that given reality that Holy Scripture reveals to us, then we can use and we say, okay, so if they are just spirits, that is distinguishing that these are immaterial substances. They don't have bodies. Uh, And so, if they don't have bodies, if they're just spirits, what are they then? And then we can look at the other stories in Scripture, and we know that angels are cognitive, they're thinking, they do things, they will things, and so then we can come to the conclusion that they are intellectual subjects, that they, they are an intellect because of what is revealed to us. So from there we can use the human process of reason, the human uh, uh, intellect, to understand what the intellectual nature of angels is, and thereby how angels exist. Now there's some caveats to this process. One of them is that we are always speaking here with analogy, meaning uh, we are still unable to know the essence of an angel in the way that we can know the essence of a cup or a glass. We're working indirectly to understand angels. We're working within analogies to understand them. And it also doesn't mean that when we're talking about angels and everything that I say, that there's universal consensus on all points of angeology. In fact, there's still a lot of disagreement and fun disagreement about the angels. Uh, let me give you one example. Um, there's different visions about the hierarchy of angels. Whether the angels are broken up into specific nine different classes, or maybe seven different classes, or, or whether those different classes just signify the role that an angel can play throughout his life. This is a big argument, and it was a huge argument throughout the history of Christianity. Now, why it's an argument is because there are nine different mentions of angelic spiritual substances within the Bible. So what do you do with them then, right? How do you reason that out? So, for example, uh, there are uh, seraphim and cherubim, right? Uh, That's what we have. And thrones. We have uh, then Uh, Then we have dominions or dominations as they uh, like to, uh, some people like to call them, Uh, virtues, powers, and then we have archangels and angels. All of those are named within the Bible. All of those are revealed to us. So what do we do with them? Uh, How do we talk about them? And so in some visions of angelology, uh, which I kind of like, uh, uh, you're going to then classify them and say, well, because God created the world and we know that God likes to create things within an order, obviously those are going to be ordered in a certain way. So let's take a look at what we know about each of those classes of angels and let's say then, how would we order them? And so One uh, man in the 5th, 6th century, I think we think today, uh, whose name was Dionysus, uh, his title is Pseudo-Dionysus because everyone thought it was another Dionysus, but now we call him Pseudo-Dionysus because we know he's later on. Uh, He wrote a really famous and beautiful piece called The Celestial Hierarchies, which said, well, there are these nine orders and there are three sets of three hierarchies. And it's this beautiful vision of, of layer upon layer of angelic, presences that all have this hierarchy and purpose. <laughs> Seraphims, which are uh, always portrayed within the, in the Bible as burning, as fire, are the closest to God because they are burning with the love of God. Then underneath them are the cherubim, and that name means the all-knowing one. So these are the angels uh, who hold all the knowledge of God. Uh, then the, the thrones, Uh, These are the ones are being raised up in front of God's seat or his throne, around his throne. So they're the ones in charge of authority and mercy, you know, helping, you know, in God's throne room. Uh, Then underneath them, you have uh, these ideas of dominions. Uh, Of course, those would be concerned with the government of the whole universe. And then after dominions, you have this idea of powers And these are, the powers would be the ones who deal with creation, who hold creation together. And then underneath the powers, you have the virtues. And the virtues is not in the sense of, like, uh, the virtue of charity. This is the sense of virtue being, um, uh, like, raw power, um, in the sense of of giving life to things, of of being the energy uh, that, that, that uh, pr- you know, kind of lives without within the universe and keeps things moving, and then uh, after that, maybe I'm skipping one. I think then you have um, the powers, uh, and the powers are thought uh, to introduce man to to introduce man to the higher mysteries. So now we're moving now from the angels pointed just to God and then to the universe to now to the angels directed specifically to help men and bring men up within this hierarchy to the glory of God. And that would be the archangels and the angels and then even down to the guardian angels. So to see this whole hierarchy and within that hierarchy, uh, the seraphim passed their love of God down to the cherubim. The cherubim passed that Uh, seraphim love of God and their knowledge of God down to the lower uh, order. And that order in turn passes it down in that turn. And what it is, is this uh, trickling effect of God's love poured out throughout all the hierarchy of the angels. And then you come to the angels whose job it is to teach that and present that to man and then to bring man back into the love of God. That's this idea of hierarchy. We come to that because there is these nine names of angels in the Bible. So what do we do with those names? And we can use this philosophical idea of hierarchy and get to this idea of a celestial hierarchy. Does it mean that that is dogma of the church? No, there's disagreement about that. And there's some people who say, well, no, I want to take those nine orders, and I want to say that each angel could be any of those nine, and that is just referring to the mission or the the work that the angel is doing at the time that they're doing that work, right? So there is not, uh, just because we're using uh, philosophy and theology, we don't have to then say that, oh, yeah, well, therefore, this is revealed truth, or is the same as revealed truth. We can still explore while given the caveat of it is an exploration and it's indirect knowledge of the angels. So we need to be careful not to overstate what we know about angels. There's much that we still do not really know, and we won't know until our own resurrection. And even then, we'll probably have a long time of growing in the knowledge of angels. Uh, To end with, I want to talk about the third uh, bit the the third base of knowledge that we use to learn about angels. And this one is where things get kind of weird. Uh, When I was first talking to Kevin about teaching about angels, uh, you you were saying how you've always wanted to, but you never wanted to offer the class because you never know who's going to show up in a class on angels. Uh, There's the people who raise their hand and be like, I've seen an angel before. (laughs) And then there's the other group that says, when are we going to talk about demons? I want to know about demons. (laughs) And so, yeah, I understand. And so this is the third area is actual human experience. Uh, And this is where we need to be careful. We do. Uh, But there are some people uh, who are able to discern the presence of angels and the presence of demons. Obviously, there's a few caveats here. Uh, One, this experience is different from our normal experiential knowledge in a couple of ways. Uh, Discerning the presence of an angel will not be with your own senses. Uh, There might be, uh, in a way, that uh, your senses might behold a shape or a form uh, to help you understand but you're not really truly understanding with your senses here. Uh, this is not experiential knowledge that can be reproduced in a laboratory. And so therefore, it's still not uh, a scientific type of knowledge. It's different. And it must be tested and brought under reason. Uh, we'll talk about more of that uh, in two weeks when we talk about uh, experiencing more and about the day-to-day Uh, work of the angels. That being said, I want to read a quote again by Father Shaw, uh, who talks about experiencing uh, the presence of angels and why this is something we need to be aware of and maybe open to. He says, never perhaps in all human history has there been a greater need for man to realize the interpenetration of spirit and matter than at this present time, in which Man, in his temporal mastery of his material environment, is deliberately denying his own spiritual existence. A sane and scriptural grasp of man's relationship and fellowship with the angels may do much to remedy the idolatry of materialism." I think that really holds true for us today. in that the more that we can learn about angels and the interpenetration of the spiritual and the material, which that is who we are. We are a combination of spirit and matter together. The more we can understand that and understand the role of the angels, the better we will come to an understanding of ourselves and our role or our action within a material world. Uh, And that's part of the goal that we'll get to. Next week we'll get to kind of experience together uh, worshiping with the angels at the Mass of all Angels. And I want you all to pay careful attention uh, to the texts that are picked out for the Mass, the propers, even the introit and the the gradual and the Alleluia. All of these little scriptural references will be hints to us about the angels and why it's important for us to have this feast day of Saint Michael and all angels. The following week, then we'll end with talking about um, our day-to-day life with angels and demons, uh, and especially centering uh, the angelic, our interactions with angels around the liturgy and prayer. So uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. And it is time for us to go.